everyone, and welcome back to the Dead Letters Podcast. I am your host, VP Morris. Today, we have a bit of a special episode for you guys. Instead of picking up with the story of what's going on with Fiona and the Dead Letters, I'm giving you the guest show I did with Brian over at I Have So Many Questions podcast. He had me on the show to talk about my writing, about this podcast, as well as a whole host of other questions. If you're unfamiliar with his show, I recommend you go check it out. He tackles a different question every episode, and sometimes he does a random question episode where it's just a bunch of different questions, which I find really fascinating because I always have a bunch of questions popping around in my head too. So, without further ado, here's our show. Hello, VP Morris. Welcome to the I Have So Many Questions podcast. Thank you for having me today, Brian. Um, you um, are a and I'm going completely off your Twitter bio. You are a writer as well as a podcast host. So we do have a, we have a few things in common. Um, and you and I had talked through Twitter and, um, you had listened to the random questions episodes I had done about three or four episodes back. And, um, we had talked about that. Um, so I'm going to, uh, throw a couple of random questions at you, although they're not really going to be random. Um, and then I know uh, there were some other questions that you and I talked about that um, of the similar vein that we were going to uh, try to wrap our heads around. Um, the first question I have is, what does the VP stand for? So I'm not going to say what the V stands for. It's for my first name, and it's kind of a dead giveaway if I say it, especially in conjunction with my real last name. So for anonymity's sake, I will skip over that, but... I will tell you what the P stands for. It stands for Petra, which is one of my many middle names. My dad is from Belgium, so over there in Dutch culture, it's very common to have two or even three middle names. So that's where that comes from. How many middle names did they give? Did your parents give you? Three originally, but I dropped one because it was just getting way too complicated. So now it's just two. Was it cumbersome because it the was it because cumbersome because of the, the spelling or was it too many syllables or or um, what was the cumbersome issue on that one? So when I was born, they registered the wrong order of the middle names with the social security's office. So so when it came time for me to get my driver's license, it was a bit of a hassle because even though there's clearly no other person that has my name with all of those middle names in it, they still wouldn't recognize me as the same person with them being out of order. So I just cut one of them and kept the two that I think flow a little bit better with my first name. Even to this day, it kind of uh, messes things up. Like with my bank, if it's uh, the abbreviated J or abbreviated P as like my middle initial for one of my other middle names, they still read me as like the wrong person. So it still can be a hassle from time to time. So your, so your name, your full name is so unique that the government, when it came time to process paperwork, botched it. And as a result, you're forced to capitulate by dropping one of your names. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Oh, only, only, I don't want to say only in America because I'm willing to bet that probably happens all over the world, but that's, that's just kind of a sad commentary on things. Um, now you are the host of the Dead Letters podcast. Um, can you tell me about, can you tell me what your show's about? Yeah, sure. So the Dead Letters podcast is an audio drama. It focuses on the lives of a few women who over history receive these mysterious letters that warn of death and destruction if they don't do as the sender says. In season one, we're focusing on Fiona in our modern times. She is having to deal with getting her first, second, and soon-to-be third dead letter. Uh, Now, how many seasons do you have mapped out for this, if all goes well? If all goes well, I could do a season per recipient, so four additional seasons, but I could also condense them into two or three seasons. I have everyone's story mapped out how I want to tell it, but I haven't fully committed to how I want to tell that to everyone else. Okay. Um, Audio dramas. I'm a big audio drama person. Um, In in some respects, I think I've got like a dozen audio dramas saved in my my, uh, podcast stream system 
that I haven't gotten to yet. Um, and I have so many, I'm just fascinated by the whole process of doing an audio drama from the scripting to the casting, to the recording, to the engineering, the producing of it, music, everything. Um, I just find that whole process fascinating. How many people do you have, or, well, let me ask you this. How many episodes have you recorded so far? They're all recorded. Oh, they're all done. Okay, so you you do the whole, did you do the whole season in advance and then put them out like once a week or once every two weeks or once a month or something like that? Yeah, so I did the script for this over the winter um, from like about December to February of the last winter we just had. And then I did the recording and the editing over the spring and I had to sit on it over the summer because I wanted it to be released in the fall because of just the kind of creepier atmosphere that comes with this time of year. But at least it's all done, so all I have to do is record my intro and schedule it for every Tuesday until the first season wraps right around Halloween. And then I'm assuming you would plan to do the second season kind of following the same schedule? I'd like to, but right now that's still up in the air. I'm considering doing a Patreon or a Kickstarter just for some more funding for season two and beyond because right now... I'm the only person voicing Fiona, which I can get away with since it's told from her perspective. But going forward, I'm going to definitely need some help. For example, uh, the first recipient of the Dead Letters is Irish and has an Irish accent. And I definitely cannot pull that off, so I would need help with someone who can do that. Because if it's me, it's going to sound pretty idiotic and weird. So I hope to get something like that. Yeah, um, I could totally see that. I've... I've tried to just ingest to pull off the occasional accent and at home around the house with my wife or my kids. And they just look at me like I'm completely inept and, and I can't fault them for it. It's, it's, it's pretty awful. Um, although I do, I do a fair Russian accent, but it's basically you're most of the time it's just trying to talk with marbles in your mouth. Um, so you're the only, so in each episode that you've for the first season, it's you're the only cast member and you're telling it from a first person narrator narrator point of view. Um, is it like in a journal style type of diary type of thing, like a Bram Stoker's Dracula type of thing? Or is it more of a your more conventional narration like you'd see in a novel type of thing? Actually, it starts off as a tape recording, which is a kind of flash forward to what's going on towards the end of this story. And then it flashes back to the start of it all, kind of like when a movie goes from black and white to color. Um, it's sort of like her confession or explanation to what led her to where she is. And she is a bit afraid that she may not make it through the next few hours. So this is a record of her time and what happened. And you are also a writer um, going again solely off of your Twitter bio, um, you have a book out there called Shadowcast? So um, it's not out yet. I'm currently querying literary agents because I'm hoping for representation and being able to get it published with a big or even independent publishing house. Um, so it's not out there yet, but I do think it's a pretty good story. So I'm hoping that it gets out there and can become a real thing someday. Um. I don't want to go into too much detail about it because obviously you're trying to get representation and that type of thing. But um, what uh, can you describe what genre of uh, literary genre it would fall under? It's definitely a thriller. There are some horror elements and there is a romance subplot, but it's definitely a investigative mystery thriller. How long did it take you to write it? Um, about a year. The summer of 2018 is when I wrote the first draft. I had a few weeks off in between jobs, so I took that time to really get the first draft out. Then I took a few months off, and then I really attacked it and made it a more readable and enjoyable book. And right now I'm in the process of querying, so hopefully I'll get some good news soon. Okay. Um, how long is it, or how many pages? Because I'm trying to... I do as time allows um i have like three things that i'm trying to write in completely different genres um as in the evening after everybody goes to bed i sit down with the laptop at about 10 or 10 30 and try to crank out an hour or so um how many pages have you is the is the book 
It's 72,000 words finished, which in published book format, that will be about 300, maybe 290 pages, depending on the margins. And are you hoping for like a hardcover um, release if it were to get published, or is it more of a soft, uh, soft cover? Um, I'm thinking soft cover, but honestly, I'm not too picky. I just want it out there. So whatever the publisher wants hardcover, soft cover, I don't really have too much of a preference. I just want it out there so other people can read it and enjoy it. The one, um, and I run into this a lot myself, um, the one temptation that seems almost irresistible is to keep going back to what I've done previously go back and look at it again and again and again and tweak it and make changes. And most of the time it's just for seeing spelling errors or sentence structure and saying, Oh, that sentence makes no sense at all and tweaking it. But there's that temptation to keep going back and going back and going back. How do you resist that urge to constantly revise something as opposed to saying, you know what? I'm done with that chapter or I'm, or for the book itself, I'm done. It's done. I'm finished. I can do no more. That's a bit of a tough one. I don't think we're ever really done, but for me, I try to do things in chunks, so I'll decide this month is for just fixing spelling errors, and next month is for just fixing character continuity, so that way when that time period is up, I can just move on to the next thing and not just keep going back over and over the same stuff. But I don't think we're ever fully finished with anything. I hear about published writers who pull their book off of the shelf and look at it and think, oh, I should have put that chapter earlier. So I don't think we're ever fully done with a story, but we just have to force ourselves to let go and put it out in the world. Your, before you started writing, what was your process? Did you outline? Did you have like an extensive outline where the entire book was mapped out and all you had to do was just kind of put in the narrative and put in the exposition and everything or was it kind of a you it was a kind of a um a, it took on a it kind of grew on its own it developed as you went I think it's a combination of both. Even if you are the most detailed outliner, you still aren't going to stick to it 100% of the time because the process of writing and the process of outlining are really different. But with Shadowcast, I definitely planned a lot more. I had previously written another novel in the young adult genre. I had a lot of agents interested in it, but no one was willing to go all the way with it because it was a bit unconventional for the young adult age demographic. But this time with Shadowcast, I planned a lot more, especially since it was a mystery. And with that, you have to make sure you're not revealing too much information too fast or you just ruin the whole story. Yeah, with a mystery, you kind of you have to you have to know how it's going to end and you kind of have to know you ha it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle you kind of have to construct um, before you ever start actually constructing it. You've got to have the whole thing, I would think, fairly mapped out. And then, you know, things about character development or character construction that aren't essential to the mystery itself, um, you could probably develop and fill in as you go um, and that type of thing. Are you, would you think, would you consider yourself as a writer to be kind of a there's one specific type of genre that you want to focus your writing on or is it a you know you're willing to do um try anything once type of writer that would really depend um, i would rely on what my agent and publishers would have to say about that because switching genres can have an effect on your reputation and your sales as a writer but for right now i'm content to write in the thriller horror mystery genre. It's something I'm very passionate about. I could continue writing in that vein for a very long time, if not the rest of my life. I do have some story ideas that are a bit on the lighter, sweeter side and in the young adult genre, but I don't necessarily have to get those done right now and I'm okay with waiting and putting those on the back burner. And um, where do you get your, where, where do you go for like um, inspirations, uh, ideas, um, something, to, something to get the, the, the brainstorming. True crime 
podcasts are actually my biggest source of inspiration. I'm a fan of podcasts in general, pretty much any genre, but if I had to pick true crime and folklore are my favorite and they definitely help get the wheels turning in my head for story ideas. Actually, uh, Shadowcast is loosely inspired by Serial, which was a big deal back, I think, in 2013 or 2014. Um, I could be wrong on the dates there, but that was the first show that really got me interested in podcasts, and I was starting to plot the basic ideas for Shadowcast back then. Yeah, everybody, I think, we when we think about... Um memorable fictional characters most of the time they're inspired by real people i mean hannibal lecter was like the amalgamation of three or four or half a dozen different serial killers um that were real people um and and then of course you've got your your stock nazi villains and that type of thing because there were actual nazis and so forth okay um well let's kind of jump into um some of these questions that we've got listed here, uh, do you want to go first or would you uh, or would you like me to take the first swing at one of these? How about you go first and I'll just pick up after that. Okay. Um, kind of piggybacking off of, of the conversation that we just had, as a reader, what's your favorite literary genre? I'd say it's still in the thriller, horror, mystery genre. Um, I love anything that's sort of dark and foreboding. I studied uh, gothic lit in college, so I love anything that's similar to that. Um, anything that is a bit twisted or that has a puzzle that you have to figure out with the characters. So I definitely still love the genre that I write in. What is in that genre, and this is going to be, I know it's going to be kind of hard to do. What is your favorite book in your favorite genre? That would have to be Dark Places by Gillian Flynn. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's definitely one of my idols, and the book is great. So if you haven't read it yet, highly I believe recommend. my wife has. My wife, um, we went and saw Gone Girl, the film adaptation, which is wonderful. I love that movie. Um, definitely not a movie to watch with the kids around. Um, I think that's the last movie my wife and I actually went and saw in the theater. But right before we went and saw the movie, she binged everything by Gillian Flynn. Um, read everything. I, I swear, I think she did it in like two weeks. Um, Gillian Flynn's kind of like um, um, Chuck Palahniuk, the, the guy who wrote Fight Club. They Their novels are very short. They're not very long, um, but they're dense. And uh, th there's a lot of material in there which kind of makes, I think, both of them conducive to uh, film adaptations because you don't really have to worry about if your book is short, it's a lot easier to put the whole thing in there um, and not really leave anything out as opposed to, say, a Tom Clancy novel back in the 80s or so, which was like 550 pages. Well, there's no way to put that into a two-hour movie effectively most of the time. But no, she binged Gillian Flynn. Um, is Dark Places the one that HBO adapted into like a miniseries with Amy Adams or am I thinking of something else? That's Sharp Objects, her first novel. Oh, okay. It was Sharp Objects. Yeah, they're both very similar. They both have a mystery investigative element to them. Uh, Dark Places is about a woman who is the sole survivor of her family's massacre and her brother went to jail for it and some people believe that he's innocent but the prosecutor obviously believes he's guilty so it's a lot about her trying to figure out who she should believe and whether or not he really did do what people think he did. It's also told from many different perspectives with flash forwards and flashbacks which I really enjoy. Actually, now that I think about it, now that you mentioned the, the, the plot, they did make this into a movie with Charlize Theron, didn't it? Didn't they? Yeah, it was made into a movie. It uh, didn't get the best review, so I avoided it because I didn't want it to ruin my interpretation of the book, but it is out there. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, it, it didn't do anything at the box office, and I think they piggybacked it within a year after Gone Girl came out. So it sounded like it was a, uh, a rush job to get it out there. Um, to kind of, um, it's kind of like when there's, uh, when they have two disaster movies in the same year or two movies about Christopher Columbus within the same year, it's like, 
you know, we got to get ours out there first type of thing. Yeah, remember those two magician movies that came out in 04? Oh, yeah. The Prestige and... The Illusionist. Yeah, The Illusionist with, with Edward Norton. Oh, yeah. I love The Prestige. I love The End. Um, and David Bowie is uh, Nikola Tesla's just inspired casting. Um, and anytime... And this is anytime you have Michael Caine using his natural British accent, that that Cockney accent that he has um, is just wonderful. Um, you know, you hear him. He's British, but you hear him like, say, in the Dark Knight trilogy, where it's a very refined British accent. And then you get him like in the Prestige, where it's very Cockney and it's it's I just love his Cockney accent um, it, for whatever reason. It reminds me of a male Eliza Doolittle from My Fair Lady or something or another. I just I just love that accent. I have a soft spot for British accents. Um, I've said it before is that as much as I love Adele singing, I could listen to her talk all day long just because of her accent. It's just wonderful. Um, OK, uh, is there a question you want to throw at me? Yeah, let's see here. What is your what is your least favorite trope in books or movies? Doesn't matter either. My Ooh, that's a tough one. Cuz I've seen a lot more movies than I've read books lately. I used to be a more voracious reader, but a lot of what I read anymore is nonfiction, which there's it's kind of hard to find a yeah, you can't really find tropes in real life. Uh, yeah, it's kind of hard to find tropes, you know, in, in nonfiction, especially when it's like history. I, I'm a big history person. Um, but as far as my biggest trope is probably the the one that really drives me nuts is the villain that's just doing stuff to do stuff. There's no motive... Yeah, just bad for the sake of being bad. Yeah, b- bad for the sake of being bad. It's one thing if the villain is bad and they know they're bad and they're okay with it. That's one thing. Um, you get a character like, um, and this is going to be kind of simplistic, but Darth Vader. Okay? He's bad. He knows he's bad. He's okay with it. Okay? And then, this, and then this is the original trilogy. This isn't the prequels. I'm not going to go there. But, you know, or the emperor, he's bad. He's knows he's bad. He's okay with it. He's after power. Okay, that's a motivation. I can appreciate that. But when you have a villain who's just, um, who's just there to, for furthering the plot, um, heck, Shakespeare did that. Um, I watched, I was channel surfing the other day and I watched uh, Much Ado About Nothing, Kenneth Branagh's film adaptation of the Shakespeare comedy from like 1992 where he had Keanu Reeves cast as the villain. And the only purpose for that villain is to move the plot, is to move that story forward. Okay. Now, granted, Keanu Reeves is, you know, he doesn't say anything. He has like no dialogue and he sneers a lot, but he's, you know, I'm okay with that. Keanu Reeves is best when he's not talking. <laughs> he, he's, he's one of those actors that, that, that does his best work when he has nothing to say. Um, in the John Wick trilogy, he's really good and it doesn't speak very much. Um, but I have a problem with a villain that's there simply for the purposes of moving the plot forward to give the, the protagonist something to do. Um, the other one that's probably a close second is the, um, what I would call the bond girl effect or, um, used to see it in comic book movies years ago. Um, the damsel in distress, the female character that's just there for, to be saved. Um, the first Spider-Man movies were like that. Um, you know, you know, Kirsten Dunst was just wasted in those movies, but that's all she was there for was the damsel in distress type of thing. Um, they've kind of gotten away from that. Um, but that one, that one really drives me that those two drive me nuts. You know, I like my villains complicated. I like them to have motivation and I like my female characters because I was raised by a very, um, strong feminist. My wife is a strong feminist. My sister's a strong feminist. I, I would grow up in a feminist household where women were just as capable, um, if not more so than men, um, certainly smarter in most instances than men. Um, 
So when, and then, you know, I grew up in the eighties, so I grew up with, you know, one of the best movies of the eighties is the movie aliens, which has arguably one of the strongest female characters in film of the last 30 or 40 years in it. Um, with Sigourney Weaver's as Ripley. And that, I think that that had a lot to do with James Cameron, um, who wrote the script as well. But I just, I, I like my villains to have depth. It's one thing if you're going to be bad to be bad and you know you're bad and that's your motivation is because you want to be bad. I'm fine with that. Um, but at the same time, I want some complexity. I want some motivation. Um, and that's the probably the one trope that just drives me nuts is that the villain's there just to be bad and they don't even know that they're being bad. They're just there to move the plot and that irritates me. Yeah, you see that a lot in horror. There are a lot of one-dimensional villains, especially like demons or witches or just like an evil ghost that's terrorizing a family. It's kind of like, why are they being this way? They just are bad to be bad. I want at least some motivation, whether it's something like money or power, even though they've been done to death. Um, I still would like to know why this entity is behaving the way it is. Yeah. Um, You know, the two villains that I can think of you know, in the last few years, the last 10 years or so, that people really identified with them, and they're both from comic book movies, but the way that those characters were presented, they had a motivation, and you kind of, it kind of made sense. Heath Ledger's Joker in the Dark Knight, the way they wrote that character, the way that the Nolan brothers wrote that character, he had a motivation. His motivation was to show the hypocrisy of the system. You're protecting a system that makes no sense. Um, and everything you, and it was, and it was also partially because he wanted to watch the world burn. That's a motivation that makes sense. You know, he wasn't Nicholson's Joker where he's just, you know, there to be funny, um, and just to do things randomly. The Joker had a very clear agenda and a very clear motivation. I, and that's what made him so compelling. And it's probably why Heath Ledger, partly why Heath Ledger won the Oscar posthumously. The other one is, you know, from the, the last two Avenger movies was Thanos. Okay. He wants to destroy half of existence. Why? So that the other half can survive. It's a very distorted motivation. It's, it doesn't make, it's wrong, but it's a motivation. It makes sense and it guides everything that that character does, you know, and I can appreciate that. Um, as opposed to others, other movies where it's just, Okay, like you said with horror movies, um, slasher films, I don't like, as far as horror goes, I don't like slasher films because, okay, great, by the seventh or eighth film, you've got Jason killing a whole bunch of kids that had absolutely nothing to do with what happened to him. The same with Nightmare on Elm Street, um, any slasher movie that's like that, you know, whereas, you know, to me, the scariest movie that I've ever seen is still Jaws because... It could happen. It, it, you know, that's something that could legitimately, realistically happen. Um, yeah, and Jaws touches on some like deep fears, like the the man versus nature fear, because you know survival is really hard, especially in something that's not our natural habitat, like water. So I feel like there's some like some primitive fears in that story. Yeah, it 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 touches something very primordial. Um, it. It, it's that whole, it really gets into the nature, it really gets into that fight or flight th- type of thing. Um, and the other one is, um, you know, the other movie that kind of scares me is the original Alien from 79 because it's, it's, a, it's a force, because again, it's a force of nature. It has no motivation. It simply is. It's a thing. This is what it does. And that's all it does. And that's when you have something like that you can't reason with it you can't figure it out all you can do is you know either confront it or run away from it those are your only options um and that type of thing where you don't have choices where you don't have options those that's kind of scary because you're 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 powerless at that point in a lot of ways yeah, I think one of the most terrifying villains that comes from horror, even though it's actually not a horror movie, but I think it could be classified as that, is Anton Chigurh from uh, No Country for Old Men. I have... He's straight up terrifying. I have not seen that movie yet. I have been wanting to see that movie. I'm pretty sure it's in my Netflix queue. I have not... 
there are some movies that I've that are that have been there for a long time and I just haven't gotten around to it. I have a kind of a my love hate I have a love hate relationship with the Coen brothers just because they they try so many different things and sometimes it works, you know, and sometimes it doesn't. Um but yeah, he he shows up on like, you know, he shows up as like the top villain in a lot of lists or he's in the top 3. Um, right up there with Hannibal Lecter and, and maybe a couple others um, all the time. And I'm like, okay, at some point I've just got to sit down and and see this movie, sit down and, and absorb this character. And I've just not been able to do it yet. The next time you have two hours to just focus on something, I highly recommend watching it. Like put your phone away. Don't try to multitask or anything during, during it. It really um, needs your full attention to just absorb you. And Anton is just super terrifying because he has these set of principles or, or rules that kind of dictate how he goes about killing people. So he kind of almost decides or lets fate decide that you're going to die and you don't really have much of a choice around it. You can't convince him otherwise. And I would straight up much rather run into uh, Michael Myers or another slasher villain in a dark alley than Anton Sugar by a large margin. Yeah, there's something about a villain that is um, smart, that knows that has complete mastery and control of every situation. They know how exactly it's almost, um, it's almost like a Sherlock Holmes type of thing where they know how everything is going to work out. They've done, they've accounted for everything. They have complete control because they know exactly what's going to happen when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen in every situation that they're in. That's, that's a, when you, when you do that, when it, when you do that for a protagonist, protagonist is kind of boring, but when you do that for a villain, that makes them terrifying. Yeah, for sure. And I love, and I love, and I love Javier Bardem plays Chigger, doesn't he? I I love on the few occasions where I've seen Javier Bardem perform, and the most the one that comes to mind is Skyfall, the Bond film, where he's just wonderful in that movie. Um, he plays a great villain, Bond villain, um, especially um, opposite Daniel Craig. Um, but he's just one of those guys that um, he's dynamic, but he's also in control. He his, he his everything he does in his performance is not random. It's you can tell that that it's kind of planned out. That he's put a lot of attention to detail into what he's going to do, what he how he's going to say his lines, how he's going to you know, his facial expressions, his, how he carries himself and all that kind of stuff. You can just tell that he's put a lot of forethought into the, into his performance, you know, almost like he does it before every scene, um, that he's in. Yeah. You can definitely tell that he is really thinking about his role when he plays, uh, Anton Chigurh. And, um, I heard from an interview I watched recently that he was a bit hesitant to take the role because at that point back in like 07 when this came out, he uh, wasn't as comfortable doing roles in English because he had done mostly Spanish roles up until then. And um, they really encouraged him to take the role. And I think it really adds to the story because no one else in the cast has a Spanish accent. And I think if he had just had a flat American accent or a Texan accent because it takes place in Texas he wouldn't have been as foreboding like he, it gets your attention when he's on screen because no one else sounds like him so I'm really glad that he did that role because it turned out really well okay let's uh try another question here um something a little more random okay if you had to choose which would you if you had to choose your form of immortality, which would you choose? Would you want to be put into a robot body where the body could be destroyed at some point? Or would you want to be downloaded into a computer and like live in like live within the internet? So with this, I have uh, two questions before I can give a good answer for this. Okay. Um, I recently watched a Ghost in a Shell, and in that movie, a company owns the robotic body, so basically okay. you belong to them. And my question is, in this situation, would I have, like, a corporate overlord? Um, let's say you have no corporate overlord. 
And uh, for the second one, for the internet one, my question is, can I move around inside the internet, kind of like a Sims game, or am I just kind of like permanently stuck and not moving or interacting with anything? Let's say that you have conscious autonomy while you're in the internet. You can you can move around. You can go different places. Um, you are you're kind of the ghost in the machine, for lack of a better term, since you brought it ghost in the shell. Um, I think I'm still going to have to go with the robot body on this one. Um, I think I still would really like to move around in space and not just virtual space. And if it does end up getting destroyed, I feel like I could be rebuilt or, you know, minor things can be fixed. And as long as there's no like corporate entity that can like own my parts or my body and tell me what to do, I'd be fine with it. I would, I think I would go with being downloaded into a computer um, because, and I'm a 44 year old white man whose body is slowly starting to fall apart on him. Um, and I, th the one thing that probably terrifies me the most as I get older, um, is losing my faculties, um, the ability to think, to make decisions, to absorb information, uh, to accumulate knowledge, um, hindering my evolution. That probably terrifies me more than anything about getting old. And to be able to, if I were downloaded into a computer, I would still be able to do all that without any of those, without concern for now, granted, there's viruses and there's all kinds of stuff in the internet, um, but assuming that I am, you know, relatively immune from those things, um, I would feel better being downloaded into a computer so that I can, I could, one would assume in toward infinity, toward continuing my evolution, continuing my development, um, becoming more. Um, now, granted, there are limitations with that. Okay, great. I have all of that knowledge. What do I do with it? Um, is knowledge for knowledge's sake um, a virtue um, if you can't do anything with it because you have no body? Um, uh, and if, I would assume that if I could be downloaded into a computer, I would probably be my ability to manipulate um, the internet would probably also be limited. It would be a that type of thing. But between, between the two choices... I would probably go with being downloaded into a computer. Uh, yeah, that's interesting, but I still see like two problems with that, even though I think living in a computer it has like better longevity than the robot body. It's just that I think if it's your literal brain being uploaded, I don't think our mind is okay with living for a really long time. I think after like 100 to 150 years, you would go insane. And even if you're, you're not like attached to a body, it would just be... I think too much, like too much mental stimulation that you would just end up getting like a little screwy. And also I could see like you're hooked up to some computer and you're talking to your great, 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 great granddaughter and she's mad at you and she just like turns it off. She's like, screw you, grandpa. I'm gonna shut this down right now. And then there would be the whole issue of I wouldn't be able to, you know, if you're permanently plugged in, there's no way to unplug um it's kind of like uh, it would kind of it's kind of like um people that um that are telepathic um you know everybody says oh it'd be great if you could read other people's minds and you're like no it wouldn't because what if you can't turn it off you're hearing everything that everybody's thinking all the time all at once you'd go insane um and if you're plugged in all the time it's the same risk um it would really depend on how my consciousness is converted into into a computer program and uploaded you know can i disconnect or can i be can i self isolate because if i can't then yeah like you said it wouldn't take long for me to probably just start going nuts um and then i'm all of a sudden i'm hal from 2001 um and i i just go insane and start you know killing people in their sleep <laughs> so Okay, um, where would you like to go next? Yep. 
All right, let's see here. Um, what is the worst advice you've ever gotten? Oh. When you sent me these questions, I was like, I was really flummoxed because I'm like, can I think of one piece of advice that I got that was really, really great, that was the best I ever got? Or was there one piece of advice that I got that was just the absolute worst? Um, and was it actually advice or was it just an idea that somebody had that I just, you know, looked at and said, well, that's, that's brilliant or that's insane. Um, it doesn't probably... have to be advice that you literally got. Like someone was like, Hey, do this thing. But, um, it could just be advice that is sort of floating around in society. Just like something you've overheard. The worst advice that I probably ever heard or ever got Fortunately, it didn't apply to me because by that point, by the time I had heard this advice, that ship had sailed. Um, um, I was already in my early 20s. Um, probably the worst advice I ever heard was, and I'm not going to say where I heard it from, was there's no good reason to go to college. By that point, I was in my early 20s. I already had a college degree, and before it was all said and done, I'd pick up two more. Um but that was probably of real specific advice um, was there's no good reason to go to college. And I pushed back on it. I argued it against it because I vehemently disagreed with it. But that's as far as specifics goes, because those four years that I went to college, they say you you know, college is a transformative experience, but, and, and they're right. Um, it's absolutely true. That period of time when you're transitioning from adolescence to full blown adulthood, that trend, that period of time, whether it's four years or five years, or if you're really ambitious, six years, that period of time is absolutely crucial. And it was absolutely crucial for me. Um, I grew up and matured and really became the person established the foundations of who I am now during that four year period. And I went away to school. I left my town. I didn't go super far away, but I went far enough away to where I was there. I was by myself. It was a really small school. I was essentially isolating myself and I could focus on why I was there, which was to get an education, to do the things that I needed to do. But also I had the, the time and the flexibility to work on all these other things that I had needed to work on. And by the time that four-year period was done, all, a lot of the issues that I had to deal with were dealt with. I'm, I was a, well, a well-rounded person ready to take on experience, which was what was missing. So that was, that's probably the worst advice that I've ever heard um, was that there's no good reason to go to college. There's plenty of re good reasons to go to college. There's a million good reasons to go to college beyond simply getting the education. My parents just looked at it like you're going to college no matter what. This is not a discussion. This is not a debate. This is what you're going to do. Um, they even, you know, kind of directed me as to where I could go and more importantly, where I couldn't go. Um, but it wasn't an option and I've got a 13 year old son now he's in eighth grade next year's high school. Once you start high school, you're, you know, things start getting more real because what you do starts to affect getting into college, where you go to college, what you want to learn in college. And he has absolutely no interest in any of that at all because he has a very narrow myopic, um, goal set that, I'm okay with if he wants to pursue that, but he needs, if that goal set isn't there for him 10 years from now, or it's on the decline 10 years from now, he needs options. He needs to have options available to him and going to college gives him those options. And also I think it would do wonders for him. He and I, he at 13 is, I'm a lot of the same way at his age that, you know, as he is now, my son is the way I was at 13. 
Um, so I see a lot of that in him and I think that college would do a lot of good for him as it did for me. But the worst advice I ever got was probably, or that I ever heard was there's no good reason to go to college. Yeah, that's definitely not the greatest advice because college degrees definitely have a bit more value in the modern era. So I think it makes sense that a lot of people get them. But um, my my worst advice is similar. It, it has to do with college, but it's basically around uh, just doing things to add them to your resume, um, whether that's like a high schooler preparing for college or being in college and preparing for a career outside. I met a lot of people who were like helicopter parents in my friend group, even though my parents weren't really like that. There were just like a lot of people like that around me who were just like, you have to do this to add your to your resume. You have to get a job while you're in college because you need it for your resume. And I just didn't really like that because I just think living that way isn't good for you. Just, you know, you should be doing things because you care about them or you're passionate about them. But um, obviously, if you need a job for financial reasons during college, then get one. But I don't think it's a great way to live one's life to just do things simply for the, uh, you know, the purpose of adding things to this piece of paper. Yeah, I resumes are good for telling you what you've done. But really what resumes do, and I know this firsthand because I've had to find a new job in the last couple of months. I had to go job hunting um, and I hadn't had to do that in almost 20 years. And um, a resume doesn't, it tells you what you've done, but what really what a resume is supposed to do is to tell other people what you know. Um, it's really, that's what it's really supposed to say. It tell other people is what you know. Okay, this is what you've done, and then they can extrapolate, or they're supposed to be able to extrapolate from that um, what you know. That's why when you put, you know, this is the job I did, this is who I worked for, and this is the period of time I worked for, and then you have to put those bullet points underneath it of what that job involved because they want to, it's not enough for them that they've got to know what you know. They've got to know what you did so that they can extrapolate from that what you know. Um, what your skill set is, what what your knowledge base is. But yeah, um, I can remember when I was a, f- a freshman orientation, 1993, showing my age, um, went to freshman orientation at my college. My parents went with me um, and we went to this um, seminar and the dean, the dean of students, the, the dean of instruction gives a speech and she says, after four years, you will not be qualified to do anything in the in your field of study. So if you study it, if you study accounting, you're not an accountant. If you study biology, you're not a biologist. After four years, you're not going to be qualified to do anything specific in your field of study. What you're going, what you will be is, and what your degree will tell any prospective employer is that you are trainable, that you can learn that you can adapt and that you can grow. That's what this, that's what a four year college education is going to tell a prospective employer. And my dad got the stink eye about it. He's like, well, if you're not going to be qualified to do anything, why am I paying for you to go to college? And I kind of had to explain it to him. And then I kind of had to explain it to him a few more times over the next four years. Um, even though, even though every time he and I talked on the phone, um, we talked about school because he, he didn't go to college. He went to, um, he went to trade school. He was a carpenter. He was a construction worker and went into construction management by trade. So he never had the college experience. So it was completely new to him. So when he first heard that, he it kind of, you know, uh, uh, ruffled his feathers a little bit, but over time he was able to understand, you know, what I did what I was doing, why I was doing it, what, and how these things were going to benefit me to where, you know, when I got out and I foolishly tried to go to, decided to go to graduate school for a year, that was a bad idea. Um, um, he was completely on board with it. Um, he completely understood everything. Um, uh, but yeah, resume padding, I don't, um, resume padding for the sake of the padding itself does, you no good, but if you're able to um, demonstrate your knowledge and your experience, you know, it's one thing to get the experience and to get to, to, 
to try new things um, towards your education. That's one thing. I mean, an internship, an internship does that um, in a lot of ways. But uh, padding for the sake of padding, yeah, that's um, just to put something, just so you can say it's on your resume. Well, that's all well and good. But if you didn't get anything out of it, if you didn't get any benefit from the experience, then beyond just being able, then just a, a line on a resume, then what was the point? Yeah, exactly. Like if you went to college with a purpose in mind, like let's say you decided you want to be a chemist and that's like your life's goal. But if you get this side job and it's taking away from your grades or from your time devoted to this main thing, then it's not really that beneficial. Even in the short term, it might be good to have extra money or add another line to that all important resume. But um, if it's like getting in the way of your main goal in life or your main purpose in college, I don't really see, you know, how great that is for you or really for anyone else. Okay. Um, I think we have enough time for one more question and I think it is my turn. So, um, I think I'm going to ask this one. Um, though we might make, we might go a little long with this one cause it's a deep question. What's the best choice you've made? So that's actually going to still stay on the uh, college train here. Um, the best choice I made was moving to New York City for college when I was 18 years old. Um, I came from a suburb outside of Portland, so I literally moved across the country and was really far away from home. And it was a bit rough going at first because New York is a, a big change. So it's, it's a bit of a culture shock, even if you are from a somewhat metropolitan area. It just takes a lot to get used to. And it's a bit, you know, of a harder place to live for many reasons. But it definitely was a great experience. And I, I really don't regret it. Um, a lot of people gave me a lot of flack for it when I told them I was going to college. Um, in Manhattan, I don't know why people cared that much, but a lot of people would say things like, oh, you're not going to last a year, or you're going to come back, you're not going to like it, and um, I never came back. It was a, it was a great experience, and um, definitely one that i do again. What, what was it? A, was it, why did you make that decision? Was it the school, and it just happened to be in New York, or was it about the New York experience itself that attracted you? Basically, I moved there because um, it would be an adventure, and it was uh, definitely an adventure. Um, I wanted to have that experience of living in New York while I was still young. It was something that was big on my bucket list, and I thought that college would be the perfect time to do that because school kind of gives you a bit of a structure and some connections, like you have room and board, you have... Um, you know, some general goals that you're going to be accomplishing in the next four years. So it's not just like uh, picking up and having to find a job and an apartment all on your own in a new city. So um, it gave me kind of like a, a bit of a reason to be there, a bit of a, a more like stable purpose. And um, it definitely was fun. New York can be really tough because it's, uh, it's so expensive and people are not always nice, but it was, uh, it was still pretty great. Were you there all? Were you there for four years? Uh, yeah, I went to school uh, there in the same place uh, all four years in Manhattan, but I didn't live in Manhattan the whole time. I lived in sort of the surrounding areas. Did you um, Did you uh, stay there, uh, say, in the summertime when school wasn't in session? Yeah, um, I only went home once uh, one summer, the one right after freshman year, but the rest of the time I took summer classes and had internships during the summer. So. I was there close to, um, you know, the, the full year other than going home for some holidays and some breaks. And that was really cool because the, the city and, and the campus are, are a bit different during the summer. So I got a bit of a different experience out of it. When you're shopping or looking at schools in New York City, how many options do you think that there probably were available to you at the time? Because <laughs> I can only imagine how many colleges or universities are in New York City within the five boroughs. I can only, it's got to be, it's got to be hundreds. Yeah, there are a lot of them and uh, a lot of them have like specialties. And um, for what I was going for with English literature and psychology, there were only three schools that I really had a strong interest in. And that was uh, NYU, Fordham, and uh, Marymount Manhattan. And Marymount Manhattan is my alma mater. So I obviously went with them. They're a small little uh, 
liberal arts college up on the Upper East Side, and and they basically gave me what I was looking for as far as like my degree, and uh, I didn't want like a super huge campus to worry about, so it was a good fit. My wife and I, I want to say it was 2015, my wife and I went to New York City for the first time, just us, no kids, and um, in late July, and we f- just fell in, we were in, Man- now granted, we were in Manhattan, we were, our hotel was like a block from Central Park, so we're like in the best part of New York City, um, but we were there for three or four days and we just absolutely fell in love with, with that city. Um, except for the airport, the airport sucks. Um, but we, but we, we, we loved it and we were like, we're, we're the type of couple where, and my parents are kind of like this, at least when they were married, they're divorced now, but we are the type of couple that, if we didn't have kids, we'd live in, we'd live in a major metropolitan area. We'd live in New York city or we'd live in, maybe we'd live in Chicago. Um, but we, or, you know, I'm in Indian, I'm in outside of Indianapolis. We might live in, you know, a condo in downtown Indianapolis or something like that. We're, we're urbanites in that regard, but we were, we, we were there for three or four days. We saw a Broadway show, an off Broadway show actually. Um, but it was one that we really wanted to see. And, uh, we did the tours. We went up in the, the rebuilt World Trade Center building, uh, Trade Center One, I think is what it's called or something like that. And we just, even the, even the subways, we took the subways. Um, we, we just, we, now I understand that the subways now compared to then are way, way worse or they were really bad then and we just didn't notice. Um, but we just fell in love with New York. And, and I told my wife, I go, if we didn't have kids, I w- or when the kids are grown and gone, I could totally, except for the cost of living, that might be an issue. Um, I could see us totally living here. I could totally do this. Um, even if I'm old, I could totally do this. And we just loved, there was just between, um, just, there's just something about New York City. Now, granted, I, I, we didn't go to the, the boroughs, Brooklyn, um, I'm drawing a blank on the rest of them. Um, but we didn't do that, but it's, there's just something about that place. I've been to Chicago a lot of times. It's nice. Um, we've been to a handful of other smaller cities. Um, but there's just something that's different about New York. I know I can't really put my finger on it, but there's, it's some, it's, it's some kind of, it has a, it has a completely different personality, I think, than probably just about every other city in America. Okay, had a little bit of a technical hiccup there. That's okay. Um, we were talking about New York City, um, or I was rambling about you, New York City, but I love, I my wife and I just loved New York City. It has a personality um, that seems completely different than just about any other city in America. Um, I can't put my finger on it, but it's just, it's just one of those places that I want to go back to, um, and explore more in depth. And I'm kind of, I kind of feel like that you probably, you know, doing that would probably require what you did, which is go there for four years, live there and just immerse yourself in it. Um, because it's so, it's such a large place in, you know, not just in terms of scale and size, but in complexity that it would, it would require years to fully, probably fully appreciate, um, New York city. Yeah. It's definitely a good opportunity if you can, uh, to just sort of be able to move into a city and sort of set up shop and, and be able to immerse yourself in what it's like to live there. Even if you don't end up living there permanently, Um, like one of the really cool things is that like, I can feel like the vibration of the subway or, uh, hear like a certain noise and I know what stop I'm at without even looking up or I can, you know, if I'm walking along this, you know, in the street and I forget what street I'm on, I can just sort of look up and without reading like the sign, see like, oh, this building means I'm in XYZ neighborhood and I just know how to like instantly get around. And that's a really great gift that I got out of the experience and I'm super grateful for it. And, um, I wish more people could have like experiences that are just you know as cool as that because i'm super grateful for it one question i have in regards to that is 
how much when you go from New York, living in New York City for four years to living someplace else, how does the how does the experience of living in New York kind of jaundice your experience living someplace else? So uh, I moved to Southern Connecticut, so that's where I'm living right now. So I'm still about an hour train ride out of Manhattan, so I'm still pretty close to where I was living, which is nice. But um, one of the bigger adjustments I had to make was that um, it, basically every day in New York, it's super beautiful. Like the buildings are iconic. You're in like one of the more historical, like important places in the world and like looking out your window it's like a beautiful you know cityscape where when you move to the suburbs um you don't always get those sort of uh views especially like in the first apartment i had it was like a not great view outside of our window of just like some back road so it kind of like bummed me out that like every day i could see this like quintessential new york moment and now i i don't um another thing is i didn't uh i didn't know how to drive so i had to learn how to move where i am <laughs> Yeah, driving driving in New York City seems like the ultimate futile endeavor. It's Yeah, it's uh it's pretty terrible. Um I've done it a few times. Well, actually not me, my husband's been the one driving us in, but it is just so infuriating. I do not recommend. Yeah, my um my sister long ago did a f- uh she got accepted to Rutgers, which is in New Jersey, and my parents, she was out there for the first, she lasted one semester. Um, but while she was there, my parents went and visited her and they decided to go into New York city while they were visiting her and they decided to drive. And, um, I did not go, I did not partake in this endeavor. And all the, all I heard about, I was like, Oh, so tell me what was New York city was like. And all I heard was about the traffic and the driving and how awful it was. (laughs) I'm like, really? You went to this wonderful place that you've never been to before, and this is all that you came away from it with. Um, So yeah, it just, driving in New York just seems like the, it just, it would make more sense for you to beat your head against the wall than try to get anywhere by car in New York City. Yeah, uh, one time we drove from where we were in Connecticut to Jersey towards where um, my husband's parents live and the bridge we normally take was closed so we had to drive through Manhattan and it turned what would normally be like an hour and a half journey into a three hour catastrophe where we were just sitting for hours and barely inching forward. It was really, uh, really not great. So if you are going to New York, just uh, don't drive. (laughs) Okay. Um, well, I think we're going to try to, to wrap this up a little bit. Um, VP, where can they find your podcast? So you can find the Dead Letters podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play Podcast, and Spotify. Okay. And... Um, I don't know. Do you want to give out your, does the, um, does the, uh, the podcast have a website? Yeah, you can, uh, get the show at its, uh, hosting site, which is the dead letters podcast.podbean.com. And you can find the show on Twitter and Facebook at dead letters pod. Okay. Um, VP Morris, thank you very much for, um, for being the inaugural guest on the I Have So Many Questions podcast. I, I really appreciate it. I had a really fun time. I enjoyed um, the this conversation and talking about these questions. I'm going to save this list of the ones that we didn't get to um, uh, in case you come back and we're able to do this again sometime. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, it was really fun going over all these questions and uh, we should totally save the ones we missed for next time. Thanks again, Brian. Okay. Um, my guest has been VP Morris, a uh, writer, podcaster, uh, creator of the, uh, the dead letters podcast. And this has been, I have so many questions. <laughs>